Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, licensed clinical social worker in Naples, Florida. And this podcast is about interesting improvisers who are often also therapists who are using improvisation work in their work with clients and others. I'm delighted to have a return guest from maybe four or five years ago, Asiel Romanelli, PhD. Good morning. Good, good afternoon. morning. Good, af- good afternoon. Yeah, it's five <laughs> o'clock here. Yeah. Thanks for having me again, Margo. I'm so delighted to have you. And since we met uh, first time, you've gotten your doctorate in yeah, social work. True. And you've done some interesting studies using improv and social workers. Can we chat just a little bit about that? Sure. So I, I don't remember exactly what we spoke about five years ago, but I've been, I was very, as a multi-potentialite who fluctuates between different professions, my background is experiential education, then performing arts, then I transitioned to therapy. I, I realized that I was a bit of a ugly duckling and I was working in the public sector at the time. And I was noticing that um, the social workers and the therapists around me were burning out, becoming cynical, bitter, tired, and grumpy. And I was wondering, does that have anything to do with my background in improv? Why, why was that not happening to me? And that sent me to think and reflect, maybe this has something to do with improv. And then I decided to research it and actually to build an academic course called Improv for Therapists and to teach it and actually measure it quantitative, quantitatively and qualitatively. And it took me six years to complete that research. And basically, I decided to go into a graduate school of, of social work in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And I taught this course and I just followed, you know, I measured certain parameters for these students and I compared them to a control group because my hypothesis was if we teach therapists to improvise more, to be better improvisers, they will be more efficient as therapists. Because as we know, all therapists are hypocrites, right? We tell our clients to do things we don't necessarily do. The, the clinical relationship is not egalitarian in that sense. I use the word hypocrites also to get a little tang. If you're listening right, to this, right. get a little, little, little pinch there because that because it's, it, the, the burden is on us. We have to keep growing and developing. But if we're thinking about this, if we want our clients to really grow and be spontaneous and authentic, we have to be spontaneous and authentic in the clinical room, in the clinic. And the study you refer to is published. And is there a link we can send our listeners? Yeah, there's three, all three articles. I mean, the PhD got published and then all three, I published three articles with the results. All of them are on my website, www.potentialstate, one word, .com. Or you can just Google SL Romanelli. There aren't a lot of them. It's not no, a common not name. Are there? Now you mentioned a multi-potentiate. And, potentialite, uh, multi-potentialite. I'm sorry. And uh, do you want to define that for us? Yeah. So I, there's a beautiful TED talk on that, actually. That's how I discovered it for the first time. Multi-potentials are people that have multiple potentials, multiple passions, multiple abilities. The opposite of that is a specialist, somebody who's good at, is really good at one thing. Um, they're also called slashers. So in my case, I'll be an uh, improviser slash therapist slash educator. Okay. So, and the idea is that these people, it took, it, it only took me 37 years to understand that, but they're basically, they don't excel at any one of those fields. Their gift is the latitude, the, like the, the horizontal integrative view. And I think what I discovered in my research, because at the, I was working as an educator, I wasn't knowledgeable to be an educator, I wasn't introvert enough to be a good therapist, and I wasn't extrovert enough to be a good actor. So in each one of these disciplines, I wasn't, I felt I wasn't enough. And then I realized it took me many, many years to realize that that is my gift. My gift is the combination. And it's these multi-potentialites. And I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are probably sitting on that range. Improviser slash therapist slash educator, whatever, slash facilitator. And I guess the message is out there is that there are more people like you. 
And in fact, I believe that um, these multipotentials will bring in the next, it will usher in the next era, the multi, the interdisciplinary um, era. If we think about it, I just want to go one more one, a step back on therapy, art, and education, which is my triage, if you want. They used to be the same, the shaman, the witch, the prophet, they were all three of them. It's only in the last couple hundred years that we've separated these disciplines and kind of each one of them went to a different track and they don't speak. And what I've realized when I was doing my research, I just realized that improvisers were never speaking to clinicians. They were saying the same things, just in different books and in different milieus. And what I did is I just integrated. I said, I showed how this concept connects to this concept and how both are relevant. And I think what's interesting when you work with therapists who are very rigid and very, are not so playful because it's a serious profession, it's life or death. Right, right. Mental health, right? So you're not going to, you don't want to make a mistake or, you know, even the language is an empathic failure, right? You can fail in this. So that's a game. It's the exact opposite of play, right? In play, there is no failing. But in game, you, you either win yes. or you lose. It's win or lose. And we're going to go get more into that. Um, I just want to say I really identify as a multi-potentialite because, you know, I was an artist. I danced. I acted. Then I got into improv. But still, all that time, I was being a therapist. And um, I think the danger for me sometimes is I get so involved in other things. <laughs> it's um, what's that expression, master of none? Um, I forget the first part of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. right, right. Like that. But, um, you know, before I even heard about improv back in around 1977, aging myself, but I studied um, the, uh, something called the new games philosophy. And I went to a right. weekend retreat and learned new games. And there was a whole play movement going on in the U.S. at the time. People like Bernie DeCobin, Matt Weinstein, Joel Goodman, others. And I learned these games. Now that I know some of them are actually improv games, but it was all about win-win games for different populations. So yeah. let's talk a bit about your perspective on games uh, versus play, and maybe we'll even play a little bit here today. So sure. So 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 it's interesting. So game has a set, has a set of rules: winning or losing. Okay. There's a, what you can do and what you can't do. So the monopoly, chess, but we could say the same thing on your mortgage. Your mortgage is a game. Your career is a game. Parenting is a game. Life is one long game. Okay. Play is a is a state of mind. It's a softened. It's a soft perception of reality, not taking myself or life or the other too seriously. And Stephen Achmanovich in his book, Free Play, which is a, I highly recommend that book, he talks about when you bring play into the game, that's when it becomes free play. That's when you get, you get energy and life and passion. And I think what I've realized is, is I can help people. I mean, play is a muscle. Our children's native tongue is play. That's it, what they do all day, right? It's the good enough parents, we frustrate them into the game of life, right? But what we do as teachers and improvisers, hopefully as also therapists, we help people, we give them permission to play, right? Which is exactly what you did in 1977. You got permission to play. And I think the reason I'm saying this is because, especially for clinicians, right? We're so deep in the game. We have so little play that we are just burning out. It's not, and we're not helping our clients because, you know, Donald Winnicott was a very famous psychoanalyst. He said, a therapist that cannot play should not be a therapist. Right, right. He really prioritized. He put an emphasis on play. Yeah. You forget that because it's such a serious profession, right? right. Clinicians, mental health. Right. Yeah, I, I, was really, that, I was really blessed to, to get that training because before I discovered improv, that's what I was doing, giving workshops on humor and playfulness and laughter. So, right. um, but I want to hear more about your perspective, not about mine. 
how did you get into play? I mean, was there a period ever when you were serious? Well, I grew up in a house with a lot of depression and mental illness. I did not grow up in a playful house um, at all, actually. And my dad would, you know, his hobby was to perform. But the message I got was art is a hobby. You can't make money from it. It's not a serious thing. It's nice on the side. And I actually grew up very regular in that sense. I didn't have a special talent or something. And I think it was, I'm trying to think, when did I actually start? When I went to do my undergrad, I went to, um, to a kind of a college town in Israel. I went far away from, as far away as I could from my parents. And I joined the dance troupe there because I never <laughs> did any performing arts. And there I happened to stumble onto an improv. It wasn't even, it was a playback theater. Yes, class, which yes. playback theater is a form of improv based on people's stories. It's a cousin of psychodrama. It's very, very big in Israel. It's also, it was actually invented in, in the States, in New York. Right. Yes. Right, by, by Jonathan Fox, which we can talk about later. Um, and then what happened to me, it was on the side. So I was studying my undergrad in, in, in uh, behavioral sciences and it was on the side. And then after I graduated, I went to London for two years. I was an emissary. I worked with Jewish communities in London and I was single. I was miserably single and I was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking for some action. So at night, I, 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 would start, I stopped going to drop in improv classes. So here I am, you know, uh, late 20s in London every night doing improv classes. And I just basically went every single night. And I think, I think for me, looking back, I was, you know, you, you teach what you need to learn. It was clear to me that I was downloading all this muscle because I keep saying this to my clients, like, I'm living proof that you can teach yourself how to play. I did not grow up playful. And I basically top downed it by doing hundreds of workshops, just and writing them down and, and, and repeating them and doing them again and again into the muscle. And I have to say, it's still, I still have to work at it. Like with my own children, I'm not always so playful. I'm usually a lot more in the game than in the play because that's what I've inherited. And I think what I've realized, and, you know, it, there's a, it's an oxymoron to do a PhD on improv, right? Right. Because improv is supposed to be spontaneous, and right, right? That, that's exactly the juxtaposition. That's how I'm built. Like it's a strong left brain trying to understand this and master this, break it down so I can teach this to other people. Because for a lot of people, they're like, "Well, I'm not playful." Right, right, right. right. I'm, I'm a serious person. I'm rigid. I'm anal. Whatever they're going to say. But actually, if we, let's connect this to the concept of potential state, which is Donald Winnicott, the same guy that said uh, yes. the therapist can't play. So he coined this phrase of potential state or transitional space, which is basically space, space between reality and fantasy. So the, the baby is born into a fantastic world. The good enough parent frustrates them into reality. But in the middle, there's the potential state. Imaginary friend, the tooth fairy, Santa Claus. Okay, as we grow older, we lose that potential state. And for me, play is a very big component of the potential state. In order for me to be playful, I need to be in a little bit of a potential state. So if I'm in a survival mentality, survivors don't, if I'm in survival mode, I can't be playful. Right. right. If, I'm, if I'm hungry or if, I'm, if there's abuse or am I scared, I cannot be playful. I can't imagine I'm in a submarine when I'm hungry for my next meal. Exactly. Exactly. But what's interesting is people that are not hungry for meals, they're just not playful. They, they, they don't have access to play. You know, all these CEOs that are burning out. Why? Because they have no play. It's not about money. It's about, can I give myself permission to play? Which and I think that's both creativity and all kinds of things. So you mentioned adventure mind and uh, oh gosh, adventure mind and survival mind. Exactly. Which yeah. are the words used by our mutual colleague and friend, Dr. Daniel Weiner, rehearsals right. for growth. Right, exactly. And how do we help people step into adventure mind? And I think that is something that can be taught. But if first of all, it needs to be modeled by the clinician. We are the weakest link of our service. We are our own glass ceiling. 
And I think for a lot of therapists, you know, I started as a play therapist. Like, so after my graduate degree in social work, I started being a play therapist, working with children. I was like, oh, I love playing. I love kids. I, was, I hated every minute of it. I wasn't playful in my own play therapy. It was way too much of a game for me. I didn't find myself. And it's actually open only when I started doing couple and family therapy. That's when I found my playground. And that's why um, as a couple therapist now, I work with my wife, who's a coach, and she's doing her PhD in gender, actually, researching wow. mother's shame. Yeah. Cool. So we, we've started working with couples to teach them how to play. Couples like play together. You know, it's families that play together will stay together. It's Exactly. Play- Wait, I want to say one more thing. One last thing about play is I call plays the lubricant of life. Oh, yeah. And I purposely use a little bit of a sexual innuendo here because everything is smoother with play. Also conflict, also sex, obviously, but also just friendship. Like you need, like as a, as a clinician, I'm, I'm squirting a lot of play in the room so I can go deeper, so I can be more blunt, so I can go more into the shadow. Right, right, right. So my question is going to be, how, or is, how do you introduce play with a new couple that has come in? Do you introduce it right away? Do you assess the situation? Um, how do you, how do you- So do- I immediately, I'm immediately from the first, my whole, first of all, my clinic's in my house. And so they, they get to see everything. So it's, it's very, I'm transparent. Like, this is how I live. If there's a mess in the kitchen, they're going to see it. But I think from the first moment, I'm thinking about, it, I had like a new couple come in today. So I'm immediately going to be a little bit playful. I'm going to find a funky metaphor. I'm going to do- like a, I'm not trying to make them laugh, but I'm not taking myself too seriously. Like if they'll say, can I, can you turn on the heat? I'll be, yes, of course. Right. I'm doing like a little, yes, ma'am. Yes, miss. Right. Yes, commander, whatever it is. And, and just that little thing. It's like, I'm assessing together with them because it's all, it's a mutual assessment, right? The two elements of my approach is play on one hand and owning your shit on the other hand, owning your shadow. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about shadow today, but maybe no. But what I want to say about play is I know it's a muscle and I know that in that initial session, which I always do one off because not everyone likes this approach, right? I'm trying to assess how playful are they? How much can, can we joke together on their expense, on my expense, you know? And I think that is something that I'm slowly checking with them, but I'm also modeling to them saying here, even if we're crying and we're saying hard things, there's going to be some lightness here. Because yeah. I know that if we don't bring in some play, there's a whole book Stuart Brown wrote a book about yes. play. It's called Play, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating book. Yeah, he has a whole uh, you know, institute for play. So he talks about the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. Right, right. And he and it play needs a massive revamping and remarketing. It needs a complete facelift because play is considered silly, but play is an essential tool for growth, for life, for vitality. So for me and. I don't know. I mean, we'll talk about this later. I have a YouTube channel with over 120 videos. And one of them is dedicated to play. And what I'll do is I'll tell my clients, watch this video at home. The video is called play is the lubricant of life. Watch it, learn it, practice it. And I think that is something that people, you know, people, again, people say I'm not playful. No, it's a muscle. If you will work at it more, you will be more playful. You can learn this. You need permission. You need a space. You need somebody who can hold that space for you. You need to, you need to find a potential state to be playful. But isn't that our jobs as therapists, partners, parents to create those spaces for the people we love by modeling it? Absolutely. So um, 
Let's go back to, uh, I love play as a muscle that we've got to develop. And uh, and the text that will accompany this podcast, there'll be, you know, we could steer people to your uh, website and the videos and highlight those. Um, And it's interesting to me, you know, when you look at a lot of funny comedians, they came from pretty horrible backgrounds. A lot of them did, you know. And so I think there's something about that that creates people's sense of humor. It's a survival tool. Well, this is interesting. Like, thank you for saying that, because I think it's really interesting. Like, I I think a lot of like Jim Carrey spoke about that, Robbie Williams, Robin Williams, but like, I sometimes think that that's their escape from it, right? I'm running away from the pain. I think what I'm realizing is play helps me stay in that crucible. Crucible is an approach in couples therapy, which, which talks about intimate relationships being a hot place where you, you're, you're, you're constantly born, die and, re, and you're reborn. But like, for me, play is the lubricant that helps me stay in the pain. I'm not running away toward play. And notice I didn't say humor. I said play. Right. Yes. Yes. Play can also be when she's crying and she has some, you know, some mucus coming out of her nose. We can, you can be playful about that. It doesn't mean right. I have to crack a joke because I'm awkward because right. I don't know how to hold this, this hard moment. Yeah, well, humor to me is an intellectual process, and it's removed from the body in terms of nice. when, we're, when we're playing, we're totally in our body. We're totally present, yeah. mindful, and all of that. Um, right. Now, uh, And one more thing I want to say, like improv is basically the blueprint for play, right? For group play. If you think about the rules of improv, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask you about that, but go, go ahead. The rules of improv. Because like, this is the thing, right? So I was thinking, as I'm doing this PhD, I was like, okay, so... You know, a lot of research says that being spontaneous and improvisational is is the goal of therapy, right? So, and I was like, yeah. And but they never like if we look at the improv literature, that is exactly the blueprint of how to create flow, how to create collaboration, how to create playfulness, how to create potential state. Like it's written, the science is they've been they cracked it, but they they, we just never the clinicians and improvisers have never sat in the same room long enough to realize they can help each other. And the improv rules, whatever book, whatever class you go to, the first improv class I thought was actually in a dance school. And I called it improv as a way of life because it was clear to me, I'm not a dancer. So I'm not going to pretend like I know what dance is, but I can say, this is a way of life. If you adopt these rules, these principles, this will change your life because life is one long game. It's true, but it's one long improvisation. Exactly. Now, but when we're teaching improv, there's a set of um, I hate to use the word rules. There's some suggestions we give to play certain games. Right. So what's your take on that improv games and play? How does that meld together? So uh, again, I'm a left brain audio digital kind of, I like structure for me that works. And that gives me, that's a sense of security because as I said, I did not grow up very spontaneous and improvisational. I'm not afraid of saying, because it's clear to like potential state, for instance, like if there are no ground rules, if there's no boundaries, you can't have a potential state. There's Robert McKean is in his book story about screenwriting. He talks about the law of creative limitation, the law of creative limitations. And he actually says you are more creative when you have limits on you. Right. So if the whole movie is set in one room, you'll be much more creative than if the whole movie can be anywhere in the world. And if you think about it, most of the improv games have a a rule, right? You're going to do a scene A, B, C. Okay, that's a rule. That's already, we've already limited the scene. So I'm not, I love the the fact that they're saying these are, call them rules, call them guidelines. I know Nick Napier in his book, he didn't like that. He says, you know, screw the rules. I like the, the rules. It's a suggestion, right? Rules are meant to be broken. But what I found when I teach therapists or, or, or lay people as well. It's like, 
they, they limit one part of you, but they help you stay much more creative. So for me, that's how I teach therapists. I'll go rule by rule. I'll have a lesson for every one of the rules, like say the thing, let it land. Yes. And there are no mistakes, reincorporate. And when I was doing my research, I realized there's more or less, there's like five, six, seven, eight improv rules, right. That we keep hearing in different places. Yes. Yes. Like everyone's speaking more or less. I would say my favorite is there's no mistakes because we tend to be so hard on ourselves as people in general and clinicians, especially, I think can be hard on themselves. So for instance, that's a great example. So there are no mistakes. And if we can connect that to relational psychotherapy, which is a two person psych psychology, which kind of started really in the last 30 years, they talk about ruptures and repairs. So they're moving away from the empathic failure that you failed to idea of a rupture and repair. And it's, a, it's a, like a, a, a cycle of, connection and destruction that keeps happening, which actually creates good therapy, good connections, good relationships, good marriages. So in a sense, if we confuse those two together, here we are at the next evolution, because if I'm afraid to make a mistake, I cannot improvise. If I'm a clinician and every session is life or death, how can I be spontaneous? How can I improvise? How can I say yes and? And I think a lot of times as a supervisor and a trainer, I just give permissions for my therapists that I train to play. And again, I want to say this for anyone who's listening, like, I'm not talking about life and death, man, man on the ledge, you know, go say yes and go jump. I'm saying most of the sessions we're doing, you know, we're in a room sitting down in two chairs, you know, like this is more about, you know, I, I think, I think therapy in a sense is, is mental intercourse. Right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're challenging each other. We're wrestling each other. Right, we're flirting right. with each other. We're tempting each other. We're, we're screwing over each other. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a war. It's a intercourse. It's a whole drama there. Right. That's what I do basically every single day. And I have to have play because if I don't have that lubricant, I won't be able to go to the shadow. I won't be able to go to the pain. It'll become too heavy, too serious, too scary. Right. And, and that is, that, that's not something I say, you know, I don't see improv as therapy. That's my, like, I don't do improv games with my clients. I am super improvisational with what, with the relationship. Right, right, right. But you don't use the games with your clients ever. No. So like Clearly. for growth is kind of, we use those exercises in our program. Right, right, right. Like I'm inspired by that, but for me, it never worked. There was a, there was a period where I tried it and I realized that doesn't work for me. Right. From my point of view, I'm doing all the improv rules. I'm just doing it in, inside the session with our relationship because i'm a very i take a very active role in my sessions yes yeah, I i'm do on too. stage with them right because at the end of the day also if you think about it most of our life will be spent at work so i want the eight hours the six hours the five hours to be meaningful i want to be on the stage too and again it's a two-person psychology it's not just what, what's happening inside of them i'm not just a tabula rasa sitting there I mean, part right. of that interaction and the goal of therapy, like the goal of improv is to create the third, the synergistic third, the creation we call this the analytical third in, in relational psychotherapy. It's, it's that thing that's more than the sum of its parts, right? When is the improv magic? When me and you do a scene and there's something that's created that either one of us could have never imagined by ourselves. Right. And, and the that's, that, I'm yeah. sorry. No. Yeah. And, and that's the same goal as therapy, right? I want every session to be synergistic. That's the idea. And there's a term we call mind meld, and it happens all the time in play, right. in, in improv, and in life. Mind melt or mind meld? Meld, M-E-L-D. Nice. Mind like melding together. Melding together. So it's when yeah. we both say, this has happened to me numerous times, where we say we're in a scene, and uh, 
both of us, my partner and I both start with the same, almost the same sentence or the same word. Yeah. It, it just happens spontaneously. And I want to get back into the therapy session as well, though. I think the idea of being playful when we're modeling playfulness and, you know, we're taking you seriously, but we're taking things outside lightly. You know, we can't just be wearing a heavy cloak all day long. And if we're able to do that and be empathetic, empathic as well, I think it's a wonderful mix, but there's some situations and I'd like to ask your opinion on this. Let's say it's a family that's surviving a recent suicide. You know, the world is so dark and grim. Are there ways you think we could introduce playfulness in a situation like that when everything is so raw? So I think if we reframe playfulness as a soft perception of reality instead of silliness, okay? Let's reframe Sorry, play. Instead of silliness? Instead of silliness, let's mm -hmm. reframe it as a soft perception of reality, of potential state. So on one hand, we can be sad, we can even shed a tear, and we can even say, talk about something funny that they used to do. Or, oh, you know, like even, even find a way to be soft about it almost. Like I wouldn't do it the day after the suicide, right? Obviously, but if we're in a year later or even two years later, we can say, that really sucks, huh? That really sucks. You know, even just like, just that really sucks. It really sucks that he did that. Oof. I'm yeah. totally shame. And like, even, even that, like I'm saying the obvious, but I'm saying it a little lightly, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, also my favorite, I mean, I'm just like, it, it, I, you know, one of my favorite improv rules, you should definitely do that. Like ask every interview, what's your favorite improv rule, right? That could be a right, really good right, question yeah. for you as a researcher, right? Because each one has their own. So for me, well, I have a whole relationship model that I've, I'll send a link to it later, but the, the, the three, my three, my so play at the base of my model is play as the lubricant of life, as I said, and then there's three core skills. Okay, so the first core skill is owning your owning owning your shadow, or what I call own your shit with as one word with an exclamation mark. The second one is let it land. Let it land. Okay, which um, in TJ and Dave's book they talk uh, improv at the improv at the speed of life. Is that a great name for a book? Yes, yes. So TJ and Dave, so they talk about see it land, let it land. And let it land in improv is let my partner's suggestion land into my body. Don't immediately react or block, let it land, okay? And then the third one is say the thing, which is another improv rule. Say what's happening right now. Right. Say the thing. In, in, in relational psychotherapy, we call this immediacy skills. Right. The ability of the clinician to say what is happening in the room right now. I don't remember what, where, why am I saying this? What was the question? I was in so much in flow. Uh, gosh, I don't know. I just lost it. Um, we we're talking about introducing play in the therapy room. But our, uh, oh, uh, our favorite, right, our, oh, here. Our favorite suggestion. Let's talk about suicide. We're at suicide. People killing themselves. Okay. 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 Here we go again. I say people killing themselves. Right. I'm. I'm I know this is a bit difficult for an American audience because America is very PC now, and it's very hard to find play when you're overly sensitive and every single word can be a trigger warning. You, you understand? I, I think the overly PC discourse is killing play. Oh, absolutely, I, absolutely. Right? And I'm realizing as I'm speaking here and being in the Middle East right now, even though I have a lot of American clients, but people that come to me know that I, my language is blunt because I need, I need permission to play. So very quickly, when I scaffold options to people, I'll, I'll be giving very extreme scaffolding. Like if someone says, um, so I'm like, how do you think... What, how do you feel about what your wife just said? 
So he'll say, I don't know. So then I'll go, are you angry? Are you sad? Do you want to jump out of this roof? Do you want to jump out the window? Do you want to burn, you know, burn all your clothes? Like I'm purposely giving him very dramatic options. Yes, and the, way yes, the, reason, yes. the reason I'm doing that is because I want to show him with me, you can go as crazy as you can. I love that. Yeah. Nothing you will say. And this goes back to Frank Ferrelli's provocative therapist, which also a wonderful book. He talks about the therapist needs to uh, think the unthinkable, say the unsayable, because he says nothing you can say is not something that the, the client has not thought about already. Yes. That's yeah. his working assumption, right? And I need to model to my clients that, and I will say that, you know, in this little scaffolding moment, I'm basically saying to them, I will not judge you. You know, you can bring all your shit, all your shadow here. It's all welcome. And all this is coming back. I mean, I'm, I'm going back to this PC. So for people who are listening, hopefully don't take offense at this. It's not because I'm trying to be rude, but I, I need, in order for me to be playful, I need to feel free. In order for me to feel free, I can't always be in the game. And I think that is something I also model to clients. I'm like, you can say here anything. Nothing, I will not judge you because I, I know I have a shadow. I know I have all the same feelings you have. So if this is going back to this family with the suicide is, so this improv rule of saying the thing. Right. All right. So I will say the thing. I, so that's my way of being improvisational, right? I'll say that really, really sucks. And it's really, really a shame. And, you know, there's so many things that could have happened otherwise. But you know what? Like, even just stating the obvious, but in a somewhat light way, not in order to feel so we'll cry again, but in order to say it. And then, like, what would you tell him if he was alive? Was anyone here angry at him? Right. Yeah, because it's also kind of selfish, no? I mean, he just thought about himself, no? So here, once again, um, so here's an example of being playful without being silly. Right. Exactly. I dare to desecrate the name of the martyr who died, you know? He also had a shadow and you know what? I'm going to call him on that. Right. Yeah. You probably wish it was you and not him, huh? With all this pain you're feeling. I can, I can understand that. See, it's these types of little questions that on one hand are somewhat provocative, but if you'd read just the verbatim of it, it would be rough, but the delivery of it, right. is playful when I'm saying it and the expressions on my face and the energy I create helps me get away with a lot of things because I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging you. Right. Exactly. Right? You know, this is uh, veering off a little bit, uh, but talking about suicide, I don't know if Israel has the same rate of suicide the States has. The largest population of suicides is becoming the 15 to 24 year olds. And um, it, it, I uh, sometimes I think I'd really love to is live in Israel because of what they do there and the way the society takes care of itself. Well, also, I mean, I mean, just to, I mean, not to go too political, but what happens at 18, there's the army. So it kind of straightens people's out, whether you want to or not, you're dealing yes. with real life issues of life and death. And I think because you're busy and you could say we're more in survival mode here in the Middle East, because it's a much more volatile. I mean, people are dying, not just of suicide, they're dying either in the two biggest forms of death in Israel are actually uh, on the road, right? Car accidents and terrorist attacks and wars, right? So I think it's really interesting, you know, we're going back to a survival mode, right? right? It's hard to be playful when you're in the army, when you're in life and death situations, right? When you're an undergrad in college and you're lost in all, whatever that is, and it's, almost, it's almost like if I want to reincorporate law of creative limitation, you're more limited in the army. You're wearing a uniform. You have a rigid schedule. Right. Whereas when, when you're undergrad and, and you have no rules, no boundaries, no curfew, no nothing, it's, it, it's, more, it's more flooding. But again, I think 
I think what we're going to be seeing, I don't know if this is connected to the podcast or not, but like the overly PC, it's shadow, the whiplash is going to be, you understand if there's so much PC that everyone's walking on eggshells, there's no play. People are, the mental illness is, I mean, right. The opposite of play is depression, right? We're going to be seeing the impact of that on the other side of the spectrum. I think uh, going back to Stuart Brown again, I thought, you know, his research started with looking at the childhoods of serial killers or mass killers like the Texas right. uh, gunmen and finding that they had no play life as children and seeing <laughs> how that creates such great pathology. So it's such right. an important form to bring to everybody and to be able to say things that might not be actually politically correct, but help people understand themselves, because that's part of what our work is, a big part, to understand themselves and to change, to understand that there's things they can change. They have the ability but, but, to change. And, and more than that, if, if, if I'm so PC that I can't say anything, then how am I going to, how am I going to stretch you? How am I going to push you? How am I going to challenge you? How am I going to touch you? Because you're touched when you're surprised, when something is surprising, when something bites, when like to, you know, if I'll tell the, one of the partners, you're really bitter, huh? You're the bitter housewife. Right. Wow. Right. And just saying that to their face with a lot of play, a lot of lubricant around that, but just having them meet that and like, wow, yeah, I am. You're the bitter housewife. You are the bitter and you're right. the emotionally handicapped husband. Right. Who has no feelings, right? Emotionally handicapped. Okay. I don't know if that's PC anymore in the States, but like for in my clinic on a daily basis, that's how I'm going to talk to these men. Because I want to wake them up. I'm like, you're emotionally handicapped. Or that's how you're seen, at least. That's the, that's the cast you are casting right now. And so, again, you could say I'm, I'm very rude and aggressive. In my point of view, that's being playful with them. Because yeah. I'm saying it to them not to humiliate them or to compete with them. I'm like, dude, check this out. This is how you're seen. I'm saying the thing. And one more improv rule, follow the fear, right? Follow the fear of the scene. Right, if this right. is about robbing a bank, rob the bank. Show, don't tell, right? Right. I'm going to go, I'm going to go straight there because I want to be relevant because every session could be the last session. Exactly. This has been such a joy to speak with you. Um, I've been kind of taking some notes and uh, I just, I wanted to ask, are you going to be doing anything in the States at all? So I mostly do webinars now. I mean, I haven't gone on a plane actually in two years. Wow. Uh, Okay. I, I don't blame you. I, <laughs> I'd love to. Um, it's it's a bit harder now, but I definitely. So I have a mailing list. You can sign up in potentialstate.com, and every month I send out new videos. There's a hundred over 120 videos. There's a and podcast. There's a blog. Oh, there's, there's so also a blog. I know there's a blog on psychology today called The Other Side of Relationships, and and I'm just I'm right now releasing a lot of content, which is again integrative. It's it will be improv and therapy and my my approach to relationships in general. You and put out wonderful. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm saying, and you can sign up to, to, the, to the main list and then I do these webinars. Also for individuals all with couples, couples who want to be more playful, couples who want to own their shit more, who want to work, go deeper. Because I think one more thing I want to say is like people are, people have this stigma. There's still a stigma about therapy, right? And a lot of couples were like, we don't need therapy. And yeah. this is what the thing is like, I'm, I try to offer things that are in between therapy and nothing, right? Because right now, Either you're like the two biggest roles we have no preparation for being a parent and being in a relationship. Those are the, the two biggest roles in our life. We have no training for Right. Exactly. Right. And how do we create spaces where couples can learn how to play, learn how to fight? That's not necessarily clinical. That's not necessarily therapy. Just like how do we get people to do improv without sending them to second city? Because for a lot of people, that's just as scary as going to couples therapy. Right. Right. <laughs> 
So how do we bring improv to the masses? How do I bring into the academy, into the school of social work improv? Right? That's the challenge. But it's so both these. It is starting it, to happen. It's very slowly. When I graduated, the dean of my school said, I said, I'm ready to work for you guys now for pay after doing this right. for three years. And she said to me, point blank, she's like, listen, I love what you're doing, but it's not a necessity. It's cute. She, did, she wouldn't hire me because for her, improv skills is not essential for a clinician. There's a huge shift that's going to have to happen, a revolution that's already starting to happen, but it's going to take time to realize that improv skills is the future. In an agile, over-technology, super high-speed, we will have to learn. It's not the strong that survives. It's the adaptive that survives. Right, exactly. Well, you know, there's a lot of going on in the States, but also in the UK, there's some great people doing improv and scholarly work as well so i'm right very hopeful that at one point improv therapy will be actual uh, actual therapy um, i think your podcast is a beautiful example of your this is your honest attempt to try to change the discourse and to connect people from outside the improv community into, into improv and you are slicing the pizza called improv into a lot of different slices and i want to commend you in thinking about that you've been doing this for five years yeah you have been consistently targeting and reaching out to different people doing improv and seeing that there's so many aspects of this work. And I want, I, I want to take this moment to commend you on that and to thank you for sending this message to so many people who would have never heard of this message. My oh, version, wow. your version, all these, you know, dozens and dozens of guests that you've had. Take well, a second. Let, let that land, Margo. Let that land right now. Okay. Thank and you know what? You've worked really hard and I think and I'll say this, I think this is gonna be your legacy. This is a legacy you're leaving. I'm not, I'm not, you're not going anywhere yet, but I think this is really important for you are leaving a legacy of what is important for you and how improv has changed your life and you're paying it forward. Yeah. Let that land, Margo, let that land. Okay. Well, I can't wait till I see you again in person one of these years. Well, who knows when it's gonna happen? But uh, Florida is a great landing place for people, I think, for conventions and things like that. So one day we'll be free of all this craziness, I hope. Um, yeah. But in Israel, uh, it just this is apropos of nothing. Isn't everybody vaccinated there? Yeah, like a lot. Most of the country is vaccinated. We're, we're pretty much back to normal. I mean, we wear masks and stuff, but yeah, we're pretty much back to normal. Not like this country. I, I don't actually know the day to day how it looks there, but yeah, I'm sure there's more. Yeah. yeah. So it's a beautiful place. Maybe I'll come to Israel someday. That would be wonderful. Yes, too. that'd be great. Yes. Yeah. And I want to say to other people, like, this is what I've discovered. I've, I've started calling my trainings the ninja therapist. Yes. What I, what I discovered is saying improv skills for clinicians, people don't get that. So I use the motive for the ninja therapist because the ninjas were the farmers that were improvisers, contrary to the, in parallel to the samurais who were from their from you know the aristocrats these were farmers that were improvisers they did whatever they needed to get from point a to point b so i call it the ninja therapist and i think that is a good metaphor for us to think as clinicians trying to improvise trying to fuse these multi-potentialites right it's the ninjas we're trying to change the world using our improv skills because at the end of the day we are the tool we have no technologies us that's beautiful. I love that. You're such a fountain of knowledge. I always love being with you. Maybe we'll get back together again someday, relatively soon, not in five years, and talk yeah. about playback theater, because that could be a whole session talking about playback theater. I also want to do a session about shadows. I think it's time yes. to start being the shadow of improv, like to talk about 
Okay. How can we use improv to go to the, to the not comfortable parts? I think that's also super important because people think that improv is only silly, silliness and whose line is it anyway? But improv can also be super vulnerable, like the moment we just had before. Like, improv is a tool for a lot of different ranges. And I'd love to, as we're saying, we were trying to rebrand improv and play, but I want to rebrand improv specifically, not just as jokes and funny, because most short form is com comical. Mm -hmm. Also, most long form, most TJ and Dave shows are usually comical. Like, when I was in London, we did long form. I was, it was a Meisner based long form company. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to go dramatic long form. We were trying to use improv to actually go to the, to the vulnerable, to the sad, to the scary, to the angry, to the aggressive. And I think part of, part of mental health is also connecting to those parts, but again, with a good dose of play. It's a good dose of play, yeah. Well, I love playing with you today. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And we will have you on thank again you. because you- I'd love to. Great thank you, Margot. And uh, I'm wishing you a great evening, a good night's sleep, and uh, love to you and your beautiful family. Thank you so much, Margot. Take care.